Okay, good morning everyone. Happy New Year. This morning we're actually starting a new Sunday School series. Um, And it's going to be on the prophethood, priesthood, and kinghood of Jesus. Uh, You can go ahead and pick up a handout if you don't already have one. We... We're going to be going through a, over the next 16 or 17 weeks, we're going to be working through a book called Prophet, Priest, and King, A Biblical Theology of the Offices of Christ by Richard Belcher. So we're going to spend a lot of time in this, and I'll probably say, if I say some things that you're like, huh, I'm curious to, to hear more about that. It's very likely that we'll be talking about it in coming weeks as well. However, all questions are welcome, so still feel free to, to stop me if, if you have a question. So our, part of our goal in the coming weeks is to trace the significance and the development of the roles of prophet, priest, and king throughout the whole Bible. And this is so that we can show how they are clearly and wonderfully fulfilled in both the person of Christ and the work of Christ on our behalf. And thirdly, we also want to actually draw out implications from these offices, even for ourselves today, for our church today, and for us as individuals. So, to, by way of intro again, the, the Bible tells us that Christ is the consummate fulfillment of these three offices. And Something that was, that was cool to, re, to realize is that um, this is not just like an exercise in theology. This is, this is worth talking about for our joy and assurance. Um, John Calvin, for example, he, he actually, he, he, was, uh, he was a theologian who really um, emphasized the three offices to help us understand what Christ has accomplished. And he, he wrote that this was important to him because it helped him find a firm basis for salvation in Christ, and it helped him actually rest in Christ and lead his, his people, the people at his church, to also rest in Christ, rest in their salvation. So I hope this series will help accomplish that. I also want to say that in thinking about prophet, priest, and king, we want to think, we want to also add the categories of both Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. So when I say humiliation, I'm talking about Christ's incarnation, his, his life as, as a you know, poor Middle Eastern man, um, his, his atoning death on the cross, burial, and then by his, um, his exaltation, I mean his, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he's now reigning and ruling. And so, for, so what I mean by that is For example, if we want to talk about the priesthood of Christ, we see the priesthood of Christ both in his humiliation when he he became the perfect sacrifice for us. And now we also see his priesthood in a a different way in his, well, maybe not necessarily completely different because he was was still uh, interceding for his people even on on earth, like in John 17, for example. But, But we also get a more clear picture of his intercession as a priest now uh, as he's sitting at the right hand always interceding for us Um, so we're going to dive more into that um, in coming weeks so before before we really jump into the outline i wanted to also uh get get a a couple of uh confessions uh to to weigh in on this um so first we're going to read this it's on your handout we're going to read um from our our church's confession of faith um, this is the confession that, that our church here, Faith Baptist, ascribes to, uh, that we believe is a um, faithful and reliable summary of what the Bible teaches. So um, this is from chapter 8, section 10. Would somebody be willing to read that paragraph for me? And you can uh, read it nice and loud, so hopefully my recording will pick, pick you up. Got it, Sabrina. The number and character of these offices of Christ is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so 
that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies. We need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Thank you. Wow, so there is, there's a lot in here, and thankfully we do have all these weeks to, to dive into it more. But I want to start out and, and just say, one, um, we're going to go into the scripture references for, for much of this in coming weeks. But I wanted to share a few um, just to give you an example of how this, this isn't just uh, people coming up with this out of thin air. This is, uh, this is drawn, Christ's offices are drawn from God's revelation in the Bible. So, for example, um, in John 1.18, um, you, you don't have to turn there. You could turn there if you want. But, but just a quick example of, of Christ's role as prophet. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So here we're seeing a, a clear picture of Christ revealing the Father as, as a prophet. The role of uh, revealing God's character. Um, and who he is. And um, also he, Hebrews 7.17, it says of Jesus, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's, he is a unique priest, internal priest. Um, and, and then finally in Matthew 21, as, as the Christ is about to enter Jerusalem, um, and he, he sends a couple of his disciples ahead, to get a donkey for him to, to ride into the city on. And the author of the Gospel, Matthew, says that this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So, Jesus, again, the, the third office right there, king. He is the coming king. Um... Next, I, wanna, I want to uh, read a couple questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. Before, before we go on, does anyone have any questions so far? Okay, good. Um, actually, I have a question for you guys. Does anyone have any thoughts? Is this talk of offices, is this familiar to anyone, unfamiliar? And if it's familiar, do you think that do you feel like you yourself or the church, do you feel like they focus on one office to the neglect of others? Um, or do you feel like it, it's, a, it's a balanced view? What do you guys think? What role do you tend to emphasize, if anything? There isn't too much talk of this kingly office. Okay. Yeah. Because of the, I mean, there, there's one aspect Yeah, but it's not too much of the um, uh, of the more because of the, the dominance of, of Arminian thought. Mm -hmm. There's not that the the uh, Calvinistic soteriological part of it, of the the drawing, the sustaining, the, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and I think similarly, it's you know we can kind of have a diminished view of Christ. Like, you know, he's just my buddy. Um, and, you know, it, it's true that, that we are called friends of God. Um, and and his, he's our shepherd. His love for us is tender and compassionate. But, but yeah, when we forget the, the kingly role of him, he's the Lord of lords, the king of kings, reigning over all things. I think, I think we can be in balance and kind of just think of him as our little buddy who's just trying to help us, help us feel good about ourselves. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really good, Harrison. Yes, Sabrina? I, I was actually thinking it really just depends on what book you're studying because each of the four Gospels kind of emphasizes a different aspect. So like when you do read mm. Matthew, you do feel that kingdom yeah. sense, you know, Christ as king. And then when like you read Hebrews, for example, you think of him more as priest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as we're going through Mark, we're really emphasizing him as a servant. Yeah. So I, I think it really just depends, you know, where you're landed. Mm -hmm. um, but then I think in terms of him being a prophet, we see that woven throughout all the Gospels. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. That's helpful. Yeah. That's good. Really good point. 
All right, good thoughts. Anything else? All right, so moving on, would someone be willing to read question and answer 31 on your note sheet? Oh. Actually, I have, I have another idea. Uh, sorry, Dad, thank, thank you, but how about I'm gonna read the question and then y'all can read the answer together. Does that sound good? We'll, we will confess our faith in, in this way. So, question, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Awesome. And then we'll do question 32 in the same way. Question, but why are you called a Christian? Answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Beautiful. So... I, I love those, and I would encourage meditation on those in the coming weeks, um, and I also include those as a little sneak peek of where we will be going in the coming weeks. So now we're going to turn. It's on the back of your outline. We're going to go through um, the, the back side of the outline and start, start out with the importance of prophet, priest, and king. Um, I want to say right at the outset that Part of how we want to read the Bible is with a redemptive historical approach. What I mean by that is that when we read the Bible, and this is, I think, especially helpful for me with the Old Testament, we want to read the Bible in light of God's working out of his plan to save a people for himself throughout human history. So in this way, it, it helps us see how the whole Bible is actually one unified storyline. It's one meta-narrative. And this also is really helpful in seeing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Um, because I, I will admit, the Old Testament can be confusing. But, but through this lens, it helps us see that not only is, for, for example, not only is he like the fulfillment of the sacrificial system as the spotless Lamb of God... Um, or the replacement of the temple as the one in whom the presence of God dwells fully um, because he is God the Son, but we can also see how he, um, how the roles and the functions of prophet, priest, and king actually point to and reveal to us things about the coming Savior. So that's, that's part, of, part of the goal here too. Not only... Can we connect Christ to these roles? But we can also, we're also going to see more how they connect to us as the church. So before, so yeah, at now, right now we're going to, in the coming weeks, we're going to actually look at how these roles are developed in Old Testament Israel. But first today, I want to, I want to help show, I want to help prove from the scriptures that these roles are actually present before even Israel's establishment. In other words, you know, uh, the function of priesthood of, of a priest it didn't start with the Mosaic law. We actually see that before Moses. Um, so first we're going to look at the life of Abraham because I think Abraham is actually presented as possessing all three of these roles. And then in the remainder of our time we're going to look at Adam and see if he has those roles as well. So um, starting out, could y'all flip to Genesis chapter 20 verse 7? And could I have a volunteer, nice and loud, read Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Who can read it? Oh, thank you, Matthew. Now then, 
return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Thank you. So, real quick, what do we learn about Abraham from this? And sorry, I'll say real quick, the context is that Abraham, unfortunately for the second time at least, had just, um, in, in traveling to a new place, had lied about his wife being his sister, and so the king had taken her. And so this, um, so this is God saying to the king uh, that he needs to um, return her because, and then he goes on to say why. So what do we learn about Abraham from this verse? Yeah, good. Absolutely. So we see him explicitly called a prophet. Um, Andrew, just yeah. on the note sheet, are, yeah. are we under 1A or B? Um, I think we're under A. Okay. Yeah, good question. Yeah, B will be when we start talking about Adam. Okay. Um, yeah, good question. Yes, so he's a prophet and apparently also able to, his prayer is effectual. Um and I think there, there's a lot, honestly, that support his, his role as a prophet. Um, I, I would also want to, in this, mention that he, of course, heard directly from God and was called by God in Genesis 12. Then, I think really significantly, um, in chapter 15 of Genesis, it says that the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And in this passage, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to is used. And what was really interesting to find out is that that phrase would have been extremely familiar to to uh, later Israelites because that's the exact phrase used to describe prophetic revelation in so many other parts of the Bible. And so even multiple books of the minor prophets like Jonah, Micah, Joel, Hosea, they begin at the very beginning it says the word of the Lord came to Mills like Jonah. And so a clear parallel is being made here that, that Abraham is a prophet-type figure. Um, you can also uh, go ahead and flip to Genesis 18. We're going to see one, one other quick example. Um, someone, uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Could somebody read verses 22 through 26? So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within a city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find it at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Thank you. Good. Yeah, so God is about to judge Sodom. And yet we see we see Abraham basically step in. What what is he what is he doing here? Interceding is part of his role. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think um I think you're right. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I actually had this as part of the uh, support for the prophetic role, but this is a good example of how these roles can be blended. Um, we'll especially see that later in Old Testament Israel and, and in Christ. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's uh, some priestly intercession, but also um, I think it's a picture of an intercessory prophet um, because the aspect of prayer is, um, is connected to um, the prophethood of Abraham, especially in a place like Genesis 20, verse 7. Um, like we just read, it's, he is a, uh, let me find that verse. 20, verse 7, it says, for he is a prophet, um, so return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. So I think it's, 
Um, I think you're right, Harrison, but I think it's also pointing to his role as a prophet. Um, and so, yeah, it, and again, his, the fact that his intercession could save the king of Abimelech, or that his intercession, you know, him and God have a little back and forth here um, in Genesis 18. Again, this, this shows his close relationship with God, um, I think, is, is that of a prophet. Um, and so in some, I would say the role of the prophet is closely connected with, the, with both the word of God and prayer. And so we see, Abraham, we see both of these things in Abraham's life. Um, the word of the Lord um, coming to him and um, his, his uh, prayer. So next, uh, as, Harrison, uh, as Harrison already uh, began us thinking about, we're going to talk about how Abraham is also pictured as a sort of priest. So first, um, you can go ahead and uh, flip, flip real quick to Genesis 12. Um, there's multiple places um, in, in this chapter that show Abraham uh, building altars. He's building altars all throughout the promised land. It's like altar, altar, altar it is what it kind of feels like. Um, but I think this is, this is another um, play, uh, a pointer to his role as priest um, because, you know, what is an altar? An altar um, was a place of worship. Um, for Abraham, he was sometimes like stacking rocks on top of each other, it seems like. But this, this was a special place of Worship in the presence of God, where he was able to call on the name of the Lord. And, of course, also altars are connected with sacrifice. And so this is really interesting. Again, the law at Sinai, the, the law from Moses had not yet been given. The people of God had not yet, in that way, been told to give sacrifices but yet we see we see people even before this doing that. Um, we see we see Noah also offering sacrifices. Um, he offered burnt offerings after the flood. Job uh, Job is kind of confusing because his book is placed later in the Old Testament, but Job also lived during the time of the patriarchs like Abraham. And so let's real quick read uh, Job 1.5, just to get a clear, clear picture of this. Turn to Job 1.5. And who could read Job 1.5 for me? Thank you. And it was so when the days of their feet came were gone, gone about, that Job sent and sacrificed them and rose up early in the morning offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continue. Thank you. What a guy. He's trying to consecrate his kids just in case they had they'd, uh, cursed God in their hearts. Um, and so the point here, though, is that he was, he was functioning in, as a priest um, in his role as, as a father and head of the family. Um, so we see priesthood, again, even before the, the law had been given. Where did this come from? We're going to talk about that more in a second. Finally, we want to see that Abraham is also pictured as, as some sort of a kingly figure. Uh, this, this was really interesting to me because I hadn't thought about this as much. But let's turn to Genesis 14 and see... See why why I would say that that Abraham seems seems to also have the role of a king. Anyone ever thought of Abraham as a king? Maybe not. Um, so who can read Genesis fourteen thirteen through sixteen? Oh wait, let me let me set this up real quick. Uh, just a little bit of context. Uh, verse verse thirteen through sixteen is in the context of basically a bunch of kings had been fighting. Uh, there's like five kings versus four kings. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, had been caught up in this conflict. And so now he, was, he had been captured. And so, so Abraham has to step in to rescue Lot. So go ahead and read. Uh, who, whoever's willing, go ahead and read verse 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite brother of Eshcol and Aner, 
these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken uh, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his household, three hundred and eighteen of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Great. Thank you, Harrison. So, does anyone, yeah, go ahead. You kind of got to go into verse uh, Verse 17 there. Yeah. It just it kind of summarizes the whole thing. Yeah, go for it. You can read that too. After his return from the defeat of Shadolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Mm. So it's just, it's impressive. Yeah. Considering that Shadolomer's record. <laughs> He's yeah. Just whooped the four kings, you know. Yeah, four kings. Pretty impressive. Yeah, he's he's doing. Uh, you know, he was leading his his army of three hundred eighteen men. Um, per per Belcher, I, I I found out that when it says that the three hundred eighteen men are trained, that word had clear. Yeah, it was like clear military connotations um, at that time. And and so he's being pictured as you know part of, we we know from probably thinking of someone like King David. Part of King David's role as the king of Israel was to lead Israel in battle. So here also we see Abraham leading his men in battle against four other kings. And then at the end, he's like negotiating with these kings and talking about the spoils. Um, we, we already knew that Abraham was very wealthy. Um, in Genesis 13, it says that him and Lot literally had to split up because they had too much stuff. So we already know that, but now we see that he's also a, a actual kingly figure as he leads um, his, his men in a military conquest. All right. So now I, I think we've seen that the elements of the offices of prophet, priest, and king, even before the nation of Israel was constituted, are present. So this provokes a question. What is their origin? Where, where did this come from? And next, I want to talk about how this should open us to the possibility that these roles are actually a part of the very original task and function given to humans at creation. So you can go ahead and already you can turn to, to Genesis 1 because we're going to be in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 for the rest of our time to, to see if this is so. Um, and yeah, we're on, we're on section B and we're about to do one, uh, points one, two, and three. But starting with, with the role of a king, um, we want to look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Who would be able to read um, verses 26 through 28? Sure. Thanks, Will. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you. What tasks does God give to mankind here? What, what words highlight man's role? You said rule? Good. Sorry, what did you say? Did I hear something else? I thought I heard dominion. Maybe I'm imagining that. You said that, Matthew? Oh, nice. Good. Um... Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, so I would say that the role of ruling creation is given here. They're to exercise dominion 
And this is, this is very, these are kingly terms. They were to imitate God in this way. Because we already know that man, uh, mankind, male and female, they are God's special creation. Only, only they are said to be made in the image of God. And it even, another indication in the text is that for other things, God just speaks into the existence. But then there's actually like some sort of a deliberation in verse 26, or not necessarily deliberation. Maybe that's a misleading term, but, but God actually, it's different though, because God says, let us make man in our image. It's, it's a man is the pinnacle of creation um, and given the task under God to actually rule that creation under his authority. And so you could say Adam and Eve were to act as God's vice regents. They were like kings under the king. Um, and they were to act as his vice regents as they cared for, kept, and even expanded the Garden of Eden. Um, I think another, another clue to this is a sort of governing aspect I think we see in Genesis 2. Um, Adam is Adam names all the animals. And so not only is this an example of like kind of his governing task, but I mean, in order to name the animals, that, that also means he has authority over them. Um, so we see there, I think the kingly role is by far the most clear. Um, but next I want to, looking at number two, we're going to also talk about uh, the priestly role and the prophet, the, the role of prophet that I believe is also implied. So first... I want to say that I don't think priest, of course, is as explicit, but I think that part of this is explainable because this was before the fall. And they already, Adam and Eve already lived in the presence of God. So they didn't need a mediator. Um, they need to offer sacrifices. So in a sense, it's not surprising that it's less obvious, but I think it is, when you really take a, take a close look, I think it's actually extremely clear. Um, so one of the main indications of their priestly role is how in the Bible, the Garden of Eden is actually like a foreshadowing of the tabernacle and the temple. And of course, what do we associate, you know, who, who looks after the tabernacle and temple? Priests. And so that's a big part of it. So for one, Eden, just like the tabernacle or the temple, was a special place of God's presence. It was where Adam and Eve walked with him, dwelled with him. It was an enclosed and protected area that was specially associated with God's blessing and presence. Um, we see that it was, you know, an actual specific special area in, in one way because cherubim were sent to guard the entrance to Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled. Another, another small parallel is from, I think, Genesis 3, we see that the entrance to the garden is on the eastern side. This is the same with the temple. Um, a really cool parallel is that Eden has a river flowing out of it, which I think, looking throughout the Bible, that we see that, that this is a great symbol of the abundance of God's blessings flowing out from his presence. And we see, we see the exact same thing happening, the exact same kind of imagery of a river flowing from God's special place of presence in both the prophetic picture of the future temple in Ezekiel 47 and also in Psalm 46 and even in John's vision of the new Jerusalem and the throne of God in Revelation 22. So... I think that when you, when you really stack all these things together, it's too much to ignore the connection between the tabernacle and temple and the Garden of Eden. Here's another huge indication. The two verbs used of Adam's work in the garden to work and to keep it, those are actually the exact same verbs in Hebrew that were used to describe the priest's work in the tabernacle. Um, if you want to write down those references, it's Numbers 3, 7 through 8, 8, 26, and 18, 5 through 6. 
And what was striking to me is that literally the only two places that these two verbs occur together in the Bible is one, with regards to Adam's work in the garden, and two, with regards to the Levite's work in the tabernacle. And, and finally, the last, the last uh, indication that I want to highlight, I think this is, this is kind of the, the most interesting and helpful one for me, but it's that one of those verbs, the, the to, to work and to keep it, um, to keep it could, could also be translated as to guard it. It really carries, the Hebrew carries the sense of guarding. So he was to work and serve it and to keep and guard the garden. And this is really important because, of course, it had to be guarded because it's God's special place of blessing and presence. So no unholy or evil things could enter in. But it's, and obviously that's why the Levites were called to protect the tabernacle. Um, But also the need for this guardianship is clearly seen in the appearance of the serpent. This serpent comes into God's garden, God's special place of blessing and presence. And he has the audacity to go up to God's vice regents and contradict God's word. He says, did God really say that? He really mean that? No, you won't surely die. The serpent got away with that because Adam and Eve, especially Adam, they were not fulfilling their role as priests. Adam should have expelled that snake right away. He especially, he, he probably should have known it even when the snake first appeared there because I, I don't think we get the indication that this was just like your average animal in the garden, but especially when the snake opened his mouth and started contradicting God's word, it was crystal clear that Adam and Eve were called to cast that snake out, even if it meant a fight, an altercation with the snake. Um, and so we see the cherubim. Uh, the, the cherubim, they actually did what Adam and Eve failed to do when the snake entered the garden. They were placed at the entrance of the garden after Adam and Eve were expelled, and they were placed there for the purpose of not letting anything unholy enter in. So um, I hope you're convinced. I'm convinced, uh, but that, that is why I think we see the role of priest. Um, finally, we're going to talk about the role of a prophet. Um, let's read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Um, who can read Genesis 2, 16 and 17 nice and loud? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Thank you. So, here the word of God comes to Adam, right? He's given a command. Now, let's read Genesis 3, 3. This is after the serpent has come into the garden and he started talking to Eve. So, I'll, I'll just read Genesis 3, 3 real quick. Um, I'll, I'll read the, the, the Genesis 3, 2 also, actually. So, this is her reply to the serpent. After he, he says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So, how... How would Eve have known God's word on this? Because in Genesis 2, it's only given to Adam. What do you guys think? How would Eve have known? It's his responsibility to tell her. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, Adam's prophetic role is seen in that he was responsible to pass on God's word to his family. And he screwed up in that regard, too. Yeah. Uh, speak, speak to that more, Harrison. Um did Eve convey God's word correctly? No. Yeah. So whether that was Adam's heart in telling her wrong, you know, either it's, yeah. it's his discipleship, it's his yeah. failure for discipleship 
in one way or another. Yeah. Either he told her wrong, added guardrails, or he didn't tell her clearly, and she added the guardrail herself. Of, yeah. Um, to not touch it. Yeah. What What do you mean by added guardrail? Like how How did she get the command wrong? Well, because in the the verse that you read. Yeah. It is. Um, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. She got that part right. But of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day that you eat of it, you shall yeah. surely die. Yeah. That was the command. Mm-hmm. But she added, or well, it got added somewhere along the yeah. line. Of, yeah. Don't even touch it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's and that's just like the guardrail that the yeah. um, all the the scribes and the Pharisees would add to the law, so that way you don't you don't yeah. come close to breaking God's law. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. In their view, it's trying to protect the people so that way they don't fall into unintentional sin, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. But it is wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, she added to God's word. She presumed to add to it. Yeah, whether it was Adam's fault or her fault or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't know if Adam gave her the wrong command or if she kind of added that part. Yeah, really good. Yeah, does that make sense how she, she changed it? You see that she literally added. She made it stricter. She said, not only can we not eat of this fruit, we can't even touch it. But God never said they couldn't touch it. So I think that, I think that it's not reading in too much to say that Eve, may, this may have even been evidence that she was already viewing God wrongly. She was perhaps, you know, viewing her loving and good creator already in a negative sort of light, seeing him as like a killjoy or as, overly strict when in reality god god's command to them it was for their good it was out of love um he did not want them to to you know have suffer what they suffered in their disobedience um so unfortunately her and adam both end up rejecting and disobeying god's word that had been given for their good thus although having the role of prophet failing to fulfill that role. I think, I think we could say that Eve's ambiguity about what God had said, um, which points to a lack of Adam's discipleship and shepherding, this was a contribution to their very disobedience. And this, of course, led to God's judgment. And that's where we're going to turn to next week, actually. I think Pastor Desmond's gonna gonna pick up in this chapter and he is gonna talk about how God's judgment has specifically impacted the three roles. So I wanna summarize though it, with what we've seen in Genesis 1 through 3. I think we've seen that the role of ruling is explicitly given to humanity, and at the very least, the roles of priest and prophet are both heavily implied and, and assumed to be a part of Adam and Eve's life. So I, I want to I wanna end here. Uh, well, I want to also real quick highlight, this is where we're going to. We're, ultimately, we're showing how Christ is the, fir- the perfect fulfillment of these. And so we can rejoice in that because Adam failed, of course, but there is a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who did not fail. And that is where our hope lies. So I want to say that because we are ending on bleak news. We're ending with the fall and we're ending with, Adam and Eve failing to to live up to these roles. Um, But it's in and through Christ that even today we can faithfully live into these roles and how we are called to. So we have a few minutes left. Um, I have a couple discussion questions, but before before I would get to any of those, do you guys have any questions or thoughts that you would want to share? I kind of already asked this, but I wanted to ask again at the end of this lesson, what, what role do you tend to emphasize either in Christ or um, what, what role, yeah, what role do you, do you feel like you maybe emphasize more than the others in the Bible or in the person and work of Christ? Priest. Priest yeah. is definitely the big one that I emphasize. Yeah. Which isn't, you know, that's good. That's good, you know. I mean, amen. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, I just, I love the book of Hebrews. So 
Yeah. That may add to the imbalance, should I say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, it's not wrong to emphasize. It's just, I think we, to be safest, we want to emphasize all three. Um, they're all worthy of emphasis. Um, yeah. It, well, let me ask this, too. Do you think it's true that Christians tend to think of Christ's work as one-dimensional? And if so, what do you think we lose from that? Yeah, I think um, maybe, like, so Christ is our priest, and he, he atoned for our <coughs> sins as our high priest. Um, but then, as like a continuation of that, he's interceding for us right now. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes we might think, that the atonement was something that was done in the past. It's already been done, um, but mm. you know, yeah. it's, it's continued through his current. Yeah, like he's interceding right now for yeah. you, for me. He's praying for us. Um, yeah, the right now. So, yeah, yeah I, absolutely. I think for, for me, sometimes, yeah, I think I have that problem. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's so true. It really is encouraging to think about wow, Christ's work for me was not just a thing that happened in the past. It is that, but it's more than that. He's literally, for his people, even now interceding. That's, that's amazing to think about. He's reigning on behalf of the church. And it, it, it doesn't always seem like that or feel like that because unfortunately we are still in, you know, this is before the second coming. We already experienced some fruits of his victory, but we're not yet experiencing like the consummation when he will wipe away every tear and when all sin will be banished and done away with. Um, so that is true, but, but yet we know that he really is reigning, interceding on our behalf. That's good. Any, any final thought before I close this in prayer? In uh, May, it's a little tangential. Oh, you're fine. But um, praise the Lord for, for Christ's priestly office in intercessing for us and, and, and you know, sympathizing with our weaknesses. Because, uh, you know, I just start, I just, mm. I read Genesis 1 to 4 last night, you know, doing the uh, starting over with reading through the Bible nice. here. And, I'm very familiar with, with Genesis because I spent so much time in it, especially verses, especially one through eleven, you know, because of creation right, yeah. and all and everything. And um, you know, talking about the rate, you know, uh, quote unquote racism and everything, and mm. just dealing with all that stuff. And um, uh, is that you know, I really just kind of read through it last night, mm-hmm. and. Um, I wasn't really, uh, to, to my shame, truly, because this is the word of God. I wasn't really, I, I was lackadaisical about it, you know, I wasn't, um, uh, you know, I wasn't humbly reading it, you know what I mean? And there's a great quote from uh, Ray Comfort that I wrote down. Hmm. He says that um, every verse you superficially skim read, you show that you are not digging for treasure. So don't be surprised when you won't find it. Stare at it and say, where is the gold? I'm not seeing it. Dig and think, then think and dig. There's gold in there somewhere, and when you find it, it will delight your eyes. Once you've exhausted your own energy, take advantage of the labor of the great gold miners of the past. Mm. If there's a familiarity that breeds contempt on my uh, that breeds contempt on my part I know that it's just my arrogant attitude and thinking I know it all mm. um, so then you know I yeah. added to that note is just humbly remember that since it's God's word no matter how many times you've studied it you have only searched you've only scratched the surface yeah you know? amen so cause I, like so I read that, like, I read Genesis 1 and 4 last night, but I didn't see any of the stuff we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew, I knew some of it in the background, but I didn't think about it. Yeah. You know, like, I knew about the, the discipleship, you know, the, the failure to discipleship and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but I didn't think about the, the kingly role. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't think about the mm. priestly role and all those things. And mm. Just like, that's massive. Yeah. And there's so much richness and depth to God's word that we can just search this one book mm-hmm. and think that it's finite in its uh, physical yeah. aspect, but yeah. it's infinite in the, the spiritual depth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like Snoopy's doghouse. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not familiar with Snoopy's doghouse, but um, yeah. I just make a plug for uh, there's a children's two-part series, more than a story, um, by Desiring God, True Seventy Eight. Oh. And one of the things I really love about this is they go through like different accounts through the Bible, but then they have a the question section at the end. It always draws back to the meta narrative of bringing Christ in it. Like nice. it has a salvation component. That's great. Um, and so just going, you know, through that with her, mm. it helps me. Yeah. To think about that too. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So I would just recommend it if anybody's interested. Yeah. For their children, more than a story. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that recommendation. Good. Yeah. I mean, I thank you for sharing that, Harrison. It's. I mean, I, I really like the part of the quote, too, that, that, you know, talked about the gold miners of the past. We are finite. Like, we, you know, if it's just me and my Bible, and I'm cutting myself off from fellowship with other believers, talking about the scriptures with others, both people like y'all at my church, and uh, other saints in other parts of the world today, other, you know, other saints throughout history, I'm going to lose. Uh, I'm going to lose out on so much insight, um, because... Uh, there's, there's just so, like you said, it's infinite. There's so much. And so I love, I love digging in, um, and trying to be more reflective, but also trying to read others who have unlocked insights that I'm like, I would never see that for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, thank you guys. I am going to close this in prayer. Um, father, we, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this study, uh, and we pray that you will uh, just use it to help us to treasure Christ more and to read the scriptures in a way that, that more helps us see the glory of Christ and the perfection of Christ and, and the, the depth of your love and your sovereignty throughout all of history on every page and help us to rejoice in that, help us to hope in that. Um, We are weak and we need you. And we thank you that you are our sufficient God and that we have an all-sufficient Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.